Hello everyone and welcome back to the Great Woman Artist podcast. Last week we interviewed the fantastic Marilyn Minter on her life and work and today we interview the brilliant Brazilian artist Adriana Varajal. But before we get to it, I'm so delighted to say that this episode is supported by Ocular. Working with a select group of just over 200 of the world's leading galleries, Ocular provides online access to the best of contemporary art. In addition to being a premium gallery platform and advisory service, Ocular publishes in-depth interviews with artists, including one with today's guest, Adriana Varajal. If, after listening to this podcast, you want to learn more about Adriana's practice, view artworks by her and register to hear about her upcoming exhibitions, you can visit ocular.com to do all of this. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015 which celebrates female artists on a daily basis ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the greatest living artists, Adriana Varajal. Best known for her sculptural, almost architectural paintings that extend far beyond the frame, Varajal has tackled themes of Brazilian cultural identity, challenged ideas of modern monuments, and in her art exposes colonial truths through traditional processes. Drawing upon the visual language of the European Baroque, Chinese song ceramics, as well as Brazilian and other South American traditions, just as she once said, interest lies in the interactions between different latitudes of the world. At once gory, visceral and theatrical, Varajal's work is all about what lies underneath the surface, literally under the layers of canvas or plaster, but also metaphorically, as she asks whose stories are being hidden and what violence is being covered up. Varajal has exhibited all over the world with major exhibitions in Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, at the ICA in Boston, and in 2016 was the designer of the Brazilian Olympic Aquatic Stadium. Today, her work continues to break ground into how we interpret cross-global intersections and ideas. So Adriana Varajal, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very good today. Thank you. Thank you for this Great introduction. It was fantastic. Oh, yeah. my absolute pleasure. So I have been such a longtime fan of your work. I worked at a gallery which represented you in London, and I've known about it for so many years since I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And when I'm witness to your work, I have an immediate visceral reaction, whether it be your meaty sculptures that protrude like flesh out of pristine tiles or your unnervingly squeaky clean paintings of bathhouses. So much tradition is embedded in your work and I love that about it because it feels familiar but perhaps eerily or hauntingly because it reveals and exposes bloody historical truths. So I want to start by asking you how do you hope for people to feel in front of your work? My feeling is that a piece of art should transform. Someone could not be indifferent in front of it. So I think it could in, in a certain way transform you 
there is a Portuguese poetry, and she says that art does not save the world, but it can save the minutes. And I think it's very beautiful because I think it should be very intense as soon as you are in front of a piece of art. I remember that uh, I read somewhere that Machisi <laughs> once said, oh, I just want to have one of my paintings in front of someone that leaves the work and is very tired and sit in a sofa and that would be like a moment of joy or something. I don't see much like that. I think that it should be much more like a punch in the stomach. It should be intense, but it has to transform you and to shake you in a way. Yeah, it's almost like this idea of transubstantiation or a religious experience as well. Yes, even it's very small and tiny, but it's a tiny perception, of course, that you're not going to change your life. <laughs> but it can be like for one minute, but uh, it should be intense. Yes, but I'm so fascinated by your use of traditional techniques and subjects, because when I look at your work, again, I mentioned this in the introduction, this idea that it feels somehow familiar because it reflects that kind of, I guess, colonial architecture or colonial genres or something. Why do you like to play with traditions? I think that it's very difficult that you can be original with painting, no? Everything was already done. I, I don't explore painting as a media itself. I use painting to talk about other subjects. So I use the, the idea of the tradition of the history of art, the traditional of especially 17th, 18th century iconography. But I normally use the painting to simulate things. So I simulate ceramic with painting. I simulate a flash. So the painting is like my filter and my denominator, but it's much more that I use it to tell stories. In terms, I use painting in a very conceptual way. When I make flash and when I open the surface of the canvas, I always use non-conventional materials to, to build the flesh. But I love the way that you've literally stretched painting to the extreme as well in your work, to the point, I love this idea of kind of uncovering under the canvas, because in a way, what I love about it is how it's, you never think that there is kind of life underneath the canvas, yet you show it to us in this three-dimensional and sculptural form. Yes, I think I go with painting to its limits. But even when I do three-dimensional objects with painting, I call it three-dimensional paintings. I never call it sculpture, for instance. Mm. In my practice, I use different medias and I play a kind of theater where painting is the main subject. You know, there was a, a series of work many years ago at Sao Paulo Biennial in 93 or 94, and the main title of the biennial was The Death of Painting, no? <laughs> the beginning of the 90s. So everybody was working with installations and nobody, like nowadays people are painting a lot again. It's amazing. But in the 90s, 
painting was unfashionable <laughs> unfashionable but much more like that painting was not on the top of the medias and then i remember that i make a kind of theater with painting as if painting was sick so i use many hospital materials i use acupuncture needles I use cuppies, I use trolleys. So I play a very strong theater with the idea as if the painting was sick. My first really approach with the idea of painting as the subject, you know, of painting, not painting the canvas, but the idea, the history of painting. Yeah. That's amazing, this idea that the painting is sick and this idea that you're also almost like the puppet master or you're the theatre director or something. And I love it's almost like an orchestra because it's all these different components. Yet painting is something that has traditionally been this flat surface. Historically, painting is the way that we can access worlds from different times. And actually what you did was convert that almost literally into this stage set. One of my favourite paintings of yours, the early one is Mapa di Lopo Homen from 1992 which is yeah. when you sort of tore this beautiful oval shaped painting of a map of the world and there's this tear in it and you can see the flesh sort of started to poke out. It's funny because the Fontana cuts the surface to say, oh, this is just a piece of cotton. You cannot put illusion on that. This is the truth. This is an object, is a frame. But after that, what can you do with painting, you know? What I decide to do is to go back to this representation, and it's the opposite of what Fontana said. You cut it and you find the pathology behind it. It's a kind of body behind it. And Mapa de Lopo Homem was a mapa that was made in the 16th century. One of the first maps of the world made by Lopo Homem, which is a Portuguese-Italian cartographer. And then there was the image of Brazil there, but the, the image of Africa and Asia. And there was a continuity between Asia to Brazil in the south. So the connection, a kind of territorial connection. So I think this map is very important historically. It was a Portuguese point of view, and the Portuguese had colonies in India and in Africa and in South America. So they were spread all around the world. And this map came with this wound. It's open, and there was an open wound there. And then a dentist, a friend of mine, sews the surface of the painting, And when she was doing that, she was saying, oh, it looks like skin. It's amazing. It's something about the oil painting. It, it dries when it's in contact with the air. It's a chemical process. Close the tube of oil paint, it lasts 100 years. So when I put a lot of painting on the surface, I noticed that inside it's still wet. And there was this skin that protects it. Until now, I think this painting is still wet if I cut it again. So what I did in this process is I exaggerated this process in my work, making it a little bit tiny in the beginning and 
expand it in a way, a different way of doing, of opening surface and finding something wet, flash, whatever body behind. It was more or less like that, the process. That's amazing. But I love this idea also of the kind of surgical element of it and that kind of pristineness, because obviously your later works of this pristinely clean bathhouses. And I love that kind of surgical element with the theatre, with all of that. The surgery is just like a theatre in a way. Yes, I have some books, especially in the 19th century, where there was an audience to see that. And in this history of painting as well, when we think about Rembrandt and of anatomy. So it's all about what history can offer us. Tradition, yes. And also the fact that when we look at bodies in history, they are these perfect, almost virginal figures. And actually no one really thinks about the reality of what's underneath that sort of perfect skin. Yes, it's very... We can talk about the Baroque <laughs> because the Baroque exaggerated this process to reveal bloody and wounds. Very theatrical idea. Yeah. When were you first drawn to the Baroque? You know, in the 80s, when I began to paint, a friend of mine gave me a very important book for me. It was written by a Cuban writer called Severo Sarduí. And the name of the book was Written in a Body. And he was talking about the Baroque, especially by Cuban Baroque literature. So that book, it transformed my life. So it was the first time that I heard about the Baroque. And then I decided to go to make a trip to a colonial city in Brazil called Ouro Preto. So it was where the Portuguese came to Brazil to extract gold. And the mines of gold were in this area. So Ouro Preto was one of the most important cities of colonialism in Brazil. And there, there are like amazing Baroque churches. And there was this artist called Alejadinho. He was a, the son of a Portuguese with a slaved woman. And he was architect and sculptor. He's my favorite artist in the world ever. <laughs> so I, when I went to Ouro Preto, I visited all these churches and I was like, totally transformed by that universe. So it was the first time. But after that, I traveled to Mexico, where they have a very radical, also Baroque. So when I talk about the Baroque, I'm talking much more about Latin American Baroque, Latin American church. Mm -hmm. Because when the Baroque came to Americas, it incorporates a lot of elements, local elements, na native elements, and it was made by native people. So these people used to put a lot of the iconography on that places as well. So this kind of mixed, this kind of open language that can assimilate many others, it's what interests me about the Baroque.
And also just this idea of Baroque being so migratory as well. And also what you were saying about this idea of strategy, because in obviously Italian Baroque in the 17th century, it was a way to actually get people to be part of the Catholic Church and tell those stories because of the Reformation and what was happening in Northern Europe. So I kind of love that. It's almost Baroque is like this propaganda. Yeah. Propaganda for like a non-scholar people. Yeah, why it's so theatrical. There is a very strong appeal to the sense. So the wounds, everything is very exaggerated. I think the Baroque, it uh, permits a multiplicity of languages. The Baroque church, especially the Latin American ones, they have a very good example how a multiplicity of languages can be together, mixed one to each other. Like you can find the Chinese elements, you can find pre-Columbian elements from the native people. So it's an universe. Everything can be found there. It can be mixed and it's together. Everything means everything. So I think, for instance, when I began to paint, I also used to go to the movies every day. And in the 80s, I remember, I used to love the cinema of Peter Greenway, for instance. Derek Jama as well. So they are contemporary Baroque, no? Directors, they are very Baroque and they are very contemporary. And they influenced me a lot. But I love that multiplicity aspect of it as well. And actually, with your work, it encompasses so much, whether it's theatre, surgery, film. What is the power of using recognisable symbols, such as objects or mosaics or symbols that kind of hold these deeper and darker meanings in your work, but that they kind of dis- they kind of disguise colonialism? Yes, I like the histories. So one of the history that I like is history of decoration. So the tiles, ceramics, and even the Baroque church, all these fields belong to much more to this field of decorative arts. And the Portuguese brought to Brazil many elements. The Europeans brought the Baroque and also all the tiles. And the idea of the tile, I like it because it's a small piece of ceramic square. But it has a lot of history in that object because it's born in the Arab world. The world azulejo in Portuguese came from Arab, which is a Polish stone. It came to Europe through the Iberic Peninsula and then also through Holland to north. They are blue and white in Portugal because of the influence of Chinese ceramics, Ming, that came to Europe through all Holland. It's a history of a big net of influences. It's how the cultures rebuilt itself in different geographic sites. So that's why I think azulejos are so nice and so rich. But it was a kind of way that a colonial language that was imposed in America as well. That's why I normally use the tiles, not tiles itself. I never use tiles. I paint with oil painting as if it was tiles. So it's a strategy of the Baroque, the trompe as well. So people are thinking that they are looking at tiles, but they realize it's 
is not tiles on the painting. But I use that as to subvert as well. I tell different stories. So I like to play with that in that way. Totally. But I'm fascinated by this idea of tiles you know, being something that's in our bathrooms as well, or wash houses. And I'm fascinated by the element of water in your work and what that can symbolize with tiles. I mean, how did you sort of get to that route then? Because of the tiles and the idea of the geometry, the grid. So tiles in my work can be different things. So they can be a media to tell stories as a historical element. And sometimes a geometrical element, no, like clean geometrical element that signifies the rationality and pristine aspect. Because here in Brazil, we use very tiles a lot in the hospitals, in butcher shops, bathrooms, and bars as well. The butcher kings in Rio de Janeiro, they are open bars covered with vulgar tiles but geometrical tiles as well and then I begin to paint these places as well and then I went to Budapest to the public baths there so I used to construct all these places which were imaginary but based on these places that I had visits That's where my painting became more traditional in a way because I use geometry, it was about color and also perspective. So I used to build all these places in a 3D program and then built these so they were completely imaginary and I project that on the canvas and then begin to paint it. And I think it says a lot about the idea of it cleanness, no? When you think about in these terms in society, no? It's impossible to clean. Like when we talk about miscegenation, it's the opposite of uh, this idea of cleanness, no? It's when you talk about uh, Nazism, there is an idea of uh, clean, racial clean, no? So I think that's what the Baroque says and what I was trying to break that this idea of a pristine place or the racial cleanness or everything, how dirty it is. So uh, after I, I made these paintings, some of them, they had blood And uh, you could feel in between the tiles, no, in the grid that it was contaminated. It's such an interesting idea, this idea of the kind of permanent stain, no matter how you try to clean it, you know, it's the kind of bloody reality. I love the kind of contradictions in it here, it, because also, especially your paintings of the Budapest bathhouses, they are so beautiful. These, these almost jewel-like objects, yet there is this kind of the bloodiness of the subject that lies beneath it. The fact that this idea of beauty and grotesqueness, again in the Baroque, coming back to that, it's this perfect oil painting, but it's showing this murderous, bloody scene. Yes, and when you are in front of that, you imagine, and what you imagine can be much worse. So the title was a kind of um, element that uh, can take you to a scary place like it was something that could be something good but could be something bad like the seducer the specialist the voyeur so 
the titles suggest something strange as well. Totally, like the obscene or something, because it is this beautiful yellow painting or the guest where it is these whitewashed tiles, but the blood is actually sort of seeped within the tiles and it, it can't go away. And I love the idea of the prevalence of absence, especially in art history, because we are so often told one narrative and one perspective. And actually the absence is almost screaming out to be heard or to be seen. When we're now thinking about these absence of these different voices and that's where your work I think is so brilliant and ties into it and speaks to like 400 years ago as well. It is exactly like that, yes. And then I arrived to this point, I don't want an, any narrative anymore. In that point, I don't want narratives. I'm a little bit tired of history. I want a point that is nothing. <laughs> that is the structure of the Baroque building as well. When you are inside you are completely disconnected from the outside. So the saunas try to reproduce this kind of pure interior, you know. And that really comes back to this idea of theatricality as well. It's like when you're at the cinema or when you're at a play, you are in this other world. Yes, absolutely, yes. So I'd love to go back to your beginnings as well. You were born in Rio in 1964, but you moved to Brasilia in 1969, which was such an interesting time because in 1960, nine years before, it was inaugurated as the capital of Brazil after a four-year construction period. Tell me about your childhood and living in this new city. <laughs> so it was Brasilia was a city that was built from zero. And it was like brought all this utopia of the modernism. No, but uh, in Nehemiah was built all these amazing palaces and buildings, and it was a totally planned city. You know, I I don't have artists in my family. My father is a military. My mother nutritionist. So they never go to museums or galleries or when we want to buy like a painting for the living room we used to go to the hippie fair there i could see it, and it was in the 70s so there was many hippie people like doing <laughs> art crafts and many things and paintings so that world inspired me because i could feel that uh, i used to live in ipanema at that time and it was a uh, counter culture place and during the dictatorship in Brazil, which was very tough periods. No? So I think when I went there to the hippie fair to see art, it was a kind of a fresh breeze for me. And I remember that my mother used to collect this magazine called Genius of Painting. And each week they publish a new issue. And I remember as well, that my first approach to art was through books. Because we don't have a Louvre in Rio de Janeiro. That <laughs> and I don't remember that we used to go to museums anyway. And then I used to stay hours, like, looking all those genius. <laughs> so... I think it was very important to, to point this experience that I experiment art through books, through printed images before I see any, many things. 
But that's so interesting as well, because, I mean, you, you were studying at such an interesting time. You were in education right after the 21 year dictatorship in Brazil. And I'm so fascinated by this idea of the suppressing of culture and the suppressing of expression and this idea of the academic painting being something quite rigid that you had to conform to yet this idea that you take these traditions and completely upend them yes yes i have my work in this way because i don't have much hierarchies you know in art in in the way i treat so i I can see a tile and classic painting or contemporary painting or a book. So to have this multiplicity of uh, references is because uh, I, I, I haven't built any hierarchy uh, since I, I grown up as an artist. So I didn't have formal knowledge of art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that's always the most fascinating. It's like, you know, kids who come to art on their own because they've discovered it. And, you know, actually not having all the information in the world is so much better because you carve out your own language and you realize what you want. And actually drawing from the world around you makes it so much more exciting. It's like about life experience. It's not just about scholarly knowledge. Yeah. Yes. I felt very free in this aspect, but after 21 years old, I made my first show at 23 years old, very young. When I began to paint, it was like a different world that opened in front of me. What's that? I was totally crazy about that. I enrolled in an engineering <laughs> university, so I stayed there. I saw a film. <laughs> In the afternoon at home, I saw a film with Elizabeth Taylor, a Vincent Minnell film called The Sandpiper, which is silly today, but at that time, when this film was made, there was a role about feminism, because the character, Liz Taylor, was a woman that decided to raise her own son at home because she wants to teach him many things. But I remember that I look at the, that character. I had 19 years old in an engineering university, and I want to be like that woman. I, I want to control my life. I want to be free. I want to, you know, do crazy these things. And then I changed to, to design. I went to the design university and then in the design I had history of art and it was my favorite class. And then I decided in a free course of painting and I went to a school here called uh, Parquilage where they have free courses of painting. You know, rent a studio and begin to paint like crazy. So I was doing my first show with in 88 with 23 years old. And at that time, we had the dictatorship in Brazil until 84 or 85. So it was like freedom opening. It was crazy periods. People were celebrating. That's such an incredible time of history to live through as well, this idea of liberation. And also sort of upending your work completely. It is also about that kind of breaking out of that rigid painting, breaking out of the four frames, completely reinventing painting from within. Yes, there was this 
impulse, no? We've had very good radical artists in Brazil uh, in the 70s, Ligia Clark, and they were very radical in terms of the surface and the relation with the body, no? And very radical proposal of art that means the environment. So uh, they both came from new concretism. It's very rational, but goes to something that was very open to the space and to the movement and to the interaction of the body and interaction with the world and the people. No. Yeah, and also just the way that we interact with art as well, they completely switched up that, whether it's also these sort of, you know, folded bits of paper or metal or something that could change the idea of sculpture and this idea of the kind of fluidity of it. And also because if you are living through a dictatorship, you have to conform to another way of life almost. Yeah, yes. And in terms of politics of art, there was, you know, censorship and it was very limited, but the art that was produced in the 70s by Arthur Barrio and Sildo Meirelles, it was very political, no? and Valtercio Caldas, they were very political. Since I began to step into contemporary art here in 83, 84, I could live this universe. Yes, and in the 80s, all the movements, not only in Brazil, but around the world, go back to painting. And I remember the first time I go outside Brazil was I went to New York. I stayed there for one month, I think 21 years old. And I saw Kiefer and Guston. I was so like fascinated by all these painters and the materiality of a person like Kiefer and Schnabel. And so in the 80s, the media painting was very strong. I'm the confluence of this conceptual art and then goes to this explosion of painting as a media. But I love that. You know, I mentioned this line in the introduction, how your interest lies in the interactions between different latitudes of the world. It's these lines coming from absolutely everywhere. It's South America, it's Europe, it's Northern America, it's New York. And the fact that you're looking at the German expressionists or what was happening in New York in the 80s and this idea of, again, the sort of viscerality of it, but tying that into tradition and everything. I mean, it's like the world colliding in your work for me. Yes. In a way, you know what's good? We have the Sao Paulo Biennial. I remember that I was like shocked. So I was interested in touring the historical cities in the Baroque, but at the same moment, I was looking at all these international movements in contemporary art. I was studying by myself. I, I was not in an art school. I was going to the movie as well to see at the same time to looking, you know, I was very hungry of art and of everything and reading and it was a very fertile period. Yeah, but that's what it's about. It's about getting all these different references from everywhere. You know, and actually the kind of more unexpected, the more interesting because you just tie in all these things and then it almost becomes so universal, actually, because so many it can translate to so many people. 
Yeah, I think that it's how you build culture, no? It's like with parts of everything and miscegenation, through miscegenation of cultures and ruins of many cultures, and then you build your own monument. It's like that. In a country like Brazil, that's very rich in terms of culture, no? I think it's because of that we are a confluence of many, many things, you no, know, mixed together in the, to build one big identity. That is a huge nation, you no, know, Brazil. It's big, and we speak the same language, but we have many origins, you no. Know? We have the Europeans, but African and indigenous. So we are like these melting pots since the beginning. This is the process. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Adriana Varajal, thank you so much for this incredible conversation. I am in awe of your work and just have learned so much today. And I really, you need to have a retrospective in England soon because <laughs> I want to see the progression of it in real life as well. Because I think this sort of interesting thread that just weaves throughout your work. And I think it also speaks to people globally as well, which I think is so powerful. Oh, thank you so much. We have one more question. As this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests if there was a female artist who was alive or perhaps from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to her? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Give me half an hour to think about that. Just someone that it's not, it's the first time that I'm thinking about that. But the other day I was very curious to meet Yayoi Kusama. Yes. And I was thinking about the process of painting, you know, how an old lady can produce that much painting, you know, and the repetitive gesture. I was curious to know how many hours she works a day, if she works like every day and how many assistants. She has, how is the process of that woman? Because it's so crazy when I see, she's almost 90 years old now. I think she's like 92 or something. She's a global phenomenon. Yes, and I'm so intrigued with the production of that. I think she's like a, a force of nature. A goddess. <laughs> Does she exist? So I was, I want to meet and touch her, you know, so it's more or less like that. It's a kind of joke, but <laughs> Amazing, amazing. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Adriana Varajal. I am just in awe at her practice and her work and can't believe the many, many, many layers that lie beneath the surface of her canvases. Incredibly intriguing. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Michaela Kaimichael. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel.